Scuba Obsesses Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 501 is recorded live July 1st, 2021. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed, where I am Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where it seems like I've lost a year or something. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, thank you. Glad to be here. I'm just distracted. The chat room is uh, throwing a, a photo of me on a TV, which absolutely is terrifying. Uh, so, But the weather... Boy, what, what has this been about? Did, did you uh, experience any of the moisture we've had in the last week? Well, we've had alternate uh, monsoon, heat wave, monsoon, heat wave, uh, and an occasional blue sky. Yeah, we did have a little bit of blue sky there going on for a while. Uh, but yeah, I was I was in Lansing this weekend. Uh, we're we're uh, moving my daughter out of her apartment. And on the way home, we had to pull off into a gas station and uh, hide in the back room for an hour and a half while the tornado sirens went off. You know, you should be bold and adventurous. <laughs> you drive, she has the camera ready. Oh, no, that was not going to happen. I, I've, I've been in a car. Well, my, so has my wife been in a car in a tornado, but at different times. Uh, it was raining real heavy. I, They had spotters who said they saw some on the ground, but it just didn't seem like it. There was, like, reports of four or five. It, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I've been in a couple tornadoes, and this just didn't quite look like it. But better safe than sorry. So we, we waited for about an hour and a half. And those sirens went off and off and off and off. So that was that was near Lansing, the state capital. Uh, but they had to do a number for all the uh, rivers for doing some diving, don't you think? It's done a number on the visibility, I'll tell you that. Yeah, a little bit like Both some... in the river, in the river especially, and it has increased the height of the river in St. Joe. Oh, so it went up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I got the... Got a lot of runoff. The text message warning us that we were had uh, flash flood warnings or watches. I don't know, it was a warning or a watch? guess it's a watch until it actually happens maybe for flash flood then it's kind of over with once 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 it's a warning i mean you're already in it i would guess unless you're way downstream of it yeah yeah i guess that could be if they had seen it upstream and we're letting you know but either way that's not good diving conditions no so I'd like to thank everybody who hung with us into the live stream today. Uh, had a little bit of challenges, and it's just remembering which buttons to press, when and where, and get everything all connected and and linked up. And I keep thinking I'm I'm getting closer each week and still going through it. 
$4.99 is the episode that we have posted that just got posted a couple days ago. I'm currently editing 500. I have the video all lined up for that. and like to thank everybody in the Mud Club for stepping up and uh, giving me permission to use some of their videos. So I was kind of running out of my stock video footage I had squirreled away and uh, was able to uh, procure quite a few more. So we'll be looking for those. And then what I might even do is take bits of them and maybe we'll do a little section to help promote some of these YouTubers. Uh, not even necessarily YouTubers, but uh, divers who've got some video out there might not get some eyeballs. So uh, some, some nice shots. There's nothing quite like uh, watching somebody's diver perspective. And some, some of these, they had some amazing conditions. Uh, when they did a dive, uh, Dave, who's in the chat room, he had a video that I looked at and it was pre quagga muscles. It was in the nineties. So we'll, we'll get that one on the intro one of these times. So let's go ahead and get started. We're going to jump right on into the news. And this is not the first article I hit the wrong button. We're going to do this one first. <clears throat> I'm making it even more complicated. So our favorite kind of shipwreck, at what point does a wrecked vessel no longer be counted a wreck anymore? Uh, the Golden Ray. When it's not there. When it's not there, when all parts are gone. So even one, yeah. sec even one section will count as a, as a wreck. But... Uh, They've got it. They cut the third section is complete. The VB 10,000 crane vessel completed its cut around daybreak today of Section 3, Shipwreck Golden Rain, the St. Simmons Sound, ending an eight-week ordeal stymied by the dense steel and brackets and massive internal fire. Cutting chain powered through 255-feet tall crane vessel broke through the top side of the half-submerged shipwreck around 6.15 a.m., so Coast Guard Ben Michael Himes, who we've heard from before. So that was good. I know that they were kind of concerned that they weren't going to be able to get through it, and they're going to have to. Last week we had talked about a little bit of blasting that may have gone on. So it's progressing. Section 3 began on May 16th, was interrupted on May 14th, did not resume until May 27th, and as we hear there, uh, they finally got it done. Do they say what's going on next? What's the next section? I think they have one last section that's going to be there, and they, they're not quite sure what they're going to do with it. It's about a 200-foot section, I thought. Mm -hmm. Well, some of this, couldn't you t take, because right now it looks like in that in that photo, is that the section they've cut off and they're putting on a barge, or is that what's left that they're cutting up? I thought that was the last section they were cutting up. Okay. Could be wrong, but that's what I thought it was. Yeah. So pretty soon we won't have that to talk about anymore. Now this is the one we were talking about. How's this for a, a di uh, license plate on your car? Scuba plates are going to hit the road in July. Texas has a plethora of scuba diving spots. 
but is largely unknown by non-divers. The Florida Gardens Bank National Marine Sanctuary is 100 nautical miles off Gaveston Island. Uh, Roger, is that Vitetto? Says people don't think they're good places to dive in Texas, so we want to make sure people are aware of the diving opportunities. He is the co-founder of the city of Houston's Underwater Mariners. Chum Houston Scuba Club, a nonprofit scuba diving club that sponsors the development of a specialty scuba diver license plate so it could create awareness and appreciation for the diving community. The plate will feature the image of a scuba diver along with the word scuba diver below and the license plate number, making it the only plate in the world featuring those words, according to Vitetto. I've been diving 20 years and people have been talking about having a scuba diving plate before I even started. When the pandemic hit, uh, he said he took his time out where Scuba Club had means to spearhead the project. Texas Department of Motor Vehicles has three ways to get a specially plate approved by the state. Anyone can register through my plates, a TX DMV contracted business through the DMTX itself or through the state legislature. The Scuba Club submitted a request for the security plates with my plates, which required a deposit of $6,000 once approved and at least 200 commitments to buy the plate. After the board gives its contingent approval for the vendor plate, my plates offers the plate online for prepaid orders. If 200 prepaid orders are achieved within six months, the plate orders move into production and the prepaid orders are fulfilled. Entire process takes about 13 months. But he said the plate is expected to be on bumpers by mid-July. Find the MyPlates.com under the sports and outdoor sections. A small portion of the proceeds of the plate will go towards the scuba club. I know we had looked at that for the preserves, and I can't remember what we found out. I, I think it was similar. But that that's a sharp-looking plate. That's a $6,000 bill, too, trying to get that plate for 200 people. Yeah, so 6000 so you got, what, that's, what, about $300 a plate? Is that what it is? No, that's $300. Oh, to get it. It costs per person to get the plate, not to mention get then going through DMV. And up here, it's about 100 bucks by the time you get the title and all that yeah, on the car. Just, or just did that I'm last not sure month. what the new yeah. plates cost. Yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I, I do the cheapy, cheapest, cheap, cheap plates I can do. I do add the endorsement for the parks because that's a good deal. I generally do, yeah. just because. Yeah, and I've got it on all the vehicles because I don't want to have to keep track of which one's got the tag on it. And that's yeah. a good reason for it. Yeah, and it, and it, it goes to the parks. They're finally releasing some of that money, by the way, a little side moment. Some of that money is going to get used. But, yeah, it's a nice plate. Yeah. I get it. Mud Club yeah, will mud look club, really good. You know, a little diver on there. I mean, Texas, they have a nice outline. I, I think Texas and... Probably Texas, Michigan, and Florida probably have the three what I consider good state outlines. Eh, Maine's not too bad, you know. California, eh, California, yeah, long, long and lanky. lanky. Yeah, people recognize California, but you like you got some of them. I mean, Idaho's kind of recognizable. Yeah, you, you get some of them in there. Yeah, Indiana maybe. Yeah, some of them are only recognizable by people in around that state. But yeah, you know, the Mitten, everybody knows the Mitten. Of course, we ignore the the UP. Then you got to kind of do the thing with two hands. There were some articles in the paper about that a couple of weeks ago. What about the UP being ignored in the? Uh, yeah, the yeah. forgotten people. Forgotten well, they just call us trolls down there. It ain't just the mid yeah. people. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. 
try. I'll, I'll try and stay out of politics this week, but <laughs> there's a lot of reasons why many of us are forgotten. Let's see here. There, there's. Is they call this one a pristine wreck? Mystery boat at Fort Stevens may tell many tales. Uh, the thing that sunk in the muck and sand in Trestle Bay looked like the lower jaw and teeth of a giant monster, like dragon's teeth from a story, Aaron Trotter thought. But as he walked across the water-emptied bay of Fort Stevens State Park at low tide, he suddenly realized he was looking at a wooden boat tilted to one side, planks crusted in a layer of marine plants and barnacles. Caspian 10 streamed and swooped over the flats. Back across the bay, people wandered. Was it wandered? Wandered? People wandered. With the curve of the beach, beyond them, large trucks rumbled down the side road, carrying massive rocks to repair the nearby scout south jetty. Everyone is oblivious to discovery, the real-life shipwrecks and buried treasure delight Trotter was experiencing. The boat Trotter thought could be anything. Maybe it's a boat from an old shipwreck, maybe used in the, make, used in the making of the south jetty built more than 100 years ago. Railroad trestles from the rail line that ferried large rocks. The jetty still border one edge of the bay. Maybe it's an old fishing boat. Trotter, a Portland artist who sells his illustrated playing card decks at the uh, South Market, prefers his shipwreck theory. I just wonder what the story is. The mystery, but some clues. For instance, it seems clear the boat is not. First, it's a new discovery. Mark, uh, was it Setcher? who operated its aero tugboat and tour company out of Astoria happened on the wreck several years ago when he's at Trestle Bay with his family. I found it. I found it, but never heard anything about it. There's hundreds of those, but they're all underwater. Second, the boat is not a Columbian River gillnetter, the type of commercial fishing boat that was once common in the river and used as salmon fisheries. Modern versions can still be seen working the Young's Bay and Young's River. The boat appeared to be heavier than a typical wooden gill netting boat the early days gill netters had been built for speed let's see do they ever get to it so there's another photo uh, yeah and they're, and they're going into a costly boat investigation and removals eat up time and quickly become costly nobody has the money to spend on the wrecks that aren't really significant Chris Dewey, the president of society, said, though he admits the question of significance is an open one. There's a significance and mystique of wrecks like Peter Iredale's farther south on the beach side of Fort Stevens or the fabled beeswax, beeswax wreck, believed to be near uh, the Nikanai Mountain or the estimated 2,000 other infamous graveyards in the Pacific that stretch from roughly Tillamook Bay to Vancouver Island probably will only be recognized for a few more years before the storms and the sea growth finish consuming it. The key, I think, is uh, how do you determine what is really significant? Because it says nobody has the money to spend on wrecks that aren't really significant. Isn't that in the eye of the beholder? Absolutely in the eye of the beholder. And that's probably going to be, you know, who's got the money. And who thinks they can get a grant or something for it? I just think it's odd that some days you can, oh, my God, look at this piece of wreckage that's not even as good as that one. And it's, you know, a work of art or something. You can't touch it. But here you got one that's got shape to it. It's not ambiguous of what it is and can't do much with it. 
I've, I've got a, sorry, I'm distracted. It's a piece of lint floating in front of the camera. Uh, yeah, th this one, it looks better than many of them we see. This one's not really that splayed open. It looks like it got beached and then filled in with sand pretty early on. And concrete, which I thought was odd. Had concrete poured in perhaps oh, for ballast? Oh, maybe it was a break wall. Yeah, I guess it could be for ballast. But like he said, I mean, the boat is sitting almost upright in the middle, accessible only at low tide, uh, without easy vehicle access. And like he said, removing the boat, digging it out would cost thousands upon thousands. Hmm. Yeah. And you have to get a permit <laughs> from the state parks. So is this near a state park? I'm not familiar. It says to go out and begin uh, to document in an official capacity means the society's members would need a permit from state parks. Now, what society is doing this? Well, and it, well, this may be Canada. They're talking about Vancouver Island, and we know that they're yeah. that they're even more strict than what we've got in the United States. Okay. Yeah, it said uh, the individual notified the Marine Time Archaeology Society, which is a local volunteer-based group that investigates shipwrecks in the Pacific Northwest. That explains why they don't have the money. This looks like it's or It's a bunch of interested people yeah, this, who like it. This looks like this was in the Astoria, Astorian, and that's in Oregon. So, huh. Oregon, isn't that where they're having that massive heat wave, 120 Oregon, degrees? Oregon, really? No, I, I yes. heard that. There have been quite a number of people in Oregon and the upper part in the Canada having um, a good number of deaths, usually in the elderly, because it's the highest it's ever been, 123 degrees. Well, that, that's a little bit toasty. Yeah. Oh, well, it is because they're having power outages because everybody wants their air conditioner, and they're having like brownouts and rolling yeah. brownouts. Yeah, it's every everybody got it. No, you haven't seen that. Not it. It, it well, wow. it's hard to get news anymore. You know, another squirrel moment because <laughs> you, you turn it on and it's like, what what crap do they want to try and force you to get you to change your behavior or do something they want you to do? You know, I just want it reported on. I don't want you trying to manipulate me. So, and it goes for all of them. Yeah. I just want to know what. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, I mean, off the subject of shipwrecks, of course, but I want to know what that Chinese defector has to say. Yeah, I, heard, I about heard about that. One, that. Right? I, yeah, yeah. There's, there's more to that that story as well. <laughs> yeah, when he's the one who's supposed to have the the names and numbers of the over forty percent of students in this country from China are part of their program to receive and discover technology and whatever else the colleges and universities mm -hmm. are teaching. And uh, he's supposed to have a wealth of information, supposed to be one of the higher mucky mucks that has yeah. ever defected. Well, and, and I'm, I, 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 what I would find more surprising is that somebody is surprised by that. Because isn't that what you do? I mean, it might not be state-sponsored, but say you send your children over to a, a foreign college I mean, and they and they plan on coming back. You're bringing that knowledge back to your country. Uh, it just depends. Uh, it it depends Absolutely. how organized it's going to be, and whether you've been given preemptive orders on a particular technology to get into. But 
What, what do we think somebody from China coming to the U.S. who's going to go back to China is going to do? They're, they want to learn, and that's part of education. So I, I have a hard time getting overly worked up on that. You just have to assume that's what's going on. Any, any foreign national is, who's not planning on staying, I mean, we've been pretty fortunate that a lot of people enjoy the way of life that we have and do decide to stay. But by the same token, you can't get in a boat and say, oh, my God, it's too bad to take all our technology with them. You, yeah. you let them in, they're going yeah. to take it out. So you can't do it both well, ways. And the, and the colleges like the money. They like the money of foreign students. I mean, yeah. you, you, you know, we've got in-state tuition. you got out-of-state tuition. You have a foreigner coming in. He's paying doubly so. I mean, that's that's money coming in the economy and everything else. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like I said, I have a hard time. Sorry for, the squirrel sorry moment. For the yeah, it'll be another moment. one. I'll just edit that out. It, it won't be there. <laughs> well, how about this for a shipwreck? This has been on social media. Uh, this particular article here is being covered in uh, a website of a radio station, of all things. They're saying it's called Outer world, Worldly is the word that comes to mind when you see these photographs. Images are from a Lake Superior shipwreck, one of the one with possibly fascinating history, made all the more interesting with the mystery attached to it. Uh, Facebook group Pure UP posted these shipwreck photos with detailed story behind them. Isle Royal National Park's Five Finger Bay tug has remained an enduring mystery since it was first spotted by seaplane pilots in 1976 lying in the southernmost finger of Five Finger Bay. The tug was remarkably intact, well-protected in the confines of the narrow bay where she lies in 15 feet of water. Uh, they're saying that's only the tip of the story. The original examiners, examination by divers in 1976 provided more questions and answers. They surmised the small wooden boat was a working tug, not a fishing tug. Divers did find a 1920 Michigan boat license plate but that turned out to be a dead end as many of Michigan's early records were destroyed by fire. The gasoline engine on it could be narrowed down to something between 1902 and 1920. After the word got out of its existence, sports divers stripped much of what was on the boat in 1977, taking with them more clues. As more people delved in the mystery, more inconsistencies deepened the mystery. A longtime observer thought the wreck Tug's work may have been something related to logging, but that would have been more a Wisconsin-related endeavor as Michigan boats weren't used as much in logging efforts in that area. Isle Royal National Park is off the coast of Minnesota, but near Ontario, not far from the northern tip of Wisconsin and Michigan's upper peninsula. Researchers hope to somewhat, that someone with a deeper knowledge of these kinds of crafts might see the pictures and be able to help identifying the ship, according to Post. The boat was probably parked in the bay due to a mechanical issue and laid up for the winter, sank in her moorings sometime during 1920s. She has likely been on the bottom for nearly 100 years of peaceful, watery grave. And I think that's probably one of the most <laughs> sensible things uh, said about it because that just makes sense. You know, why would it be uh, so shallow? Especially 15 foot. And I'm surprised it doesn't have ice damage. Yeah, yeah, so it must be that it, it's just extremely protected. Now, you know what that reminds you of, Don? No, what's it? that? Jenny Lynn, Duncan Bay. Okay. Yeah, there's some nice photos in there. Have you dove, have you dove Jenny so. Lynn? Do you know if we're no, talking? No, I have talking? no idea. 
I'm just I'm just agreeing with okay, you. Isn't it, it, it looks pretty much like this, only bigger. The cabin itself is still on it, engines on it. You can do a penetration mm -hmm. if you were. It's not you're not going to get lost in the penetration. Sure. I'll put it that way. Uh, but it's a good one because you mm -hmm. can snorkel it. And I think it's only in like 25 feet of water, as I recollect. And uh, it's a very good sheltered rat. It was the same thing. It and the uh, car carrier. Remember the car carrier mm -hmm. was by it. They salvaged the car carrier, and that's still down there. And this is the one they actually do ice dives on, or they have okay. done uh, prior to the dive shop closing. Because you just make a hole off to the side. The visibility on that has always been good. So this is what that reminds me of. Yeah. Nice picture. Yeah, and what I've been showing here in the video stream is a uh, post that Brendan Ballard put. And which which group is that? Is it Michigan Mysteries or something? Don't know. Because this is the post. I went and looked at it, and now it's it just says he. I know he posted it. Let's see if I can. Yeah. Well, well, it it's in the show notes, so you can link to it and take a look. Or I think what it is, this looks like a post that he did personally, and then it's been posted to a bunch of uh, different groups. Uh, so what I'm going to do here is we've got another view of that wreck. And I love it when people do this sort of item. So you see that? So this is somebody did a f the photogrammetry where they take the photos and they run it through software and so that they're able to stitch together a 3D model. Yeah. And then before this, this show, we were taking a look at this and was that a baseball bat on the back end? <laughs> that could just be an artifact of the, the rendering, why it's white. Mm -hmm. uh, try not to move too quick, make somebody seasick if they're watching on their TV. Uh, but yeah, there's there's stuff in there. Nice scan. It looks like there's a box. Go right on in. There you go. I love that. That was great that somebody had taken the time to stitch those photos together. I got to figure out how to clear this out. And then here we got one from Hawaii. And I, gosh, another name I'm going to slaughter. So I'm going to say a boat crew discovers parts of a shipwreck in Lalo from nearly 200 years ago. So it's the Poly Polynesian Voyaging Society discovers the shipwreck. During a dive to survey coral, re coral reefs in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, crew members uh, made an underwater discovery, parts of the sh shipwreckage dating back to the 1800s. Crew found two large anchors, two pots at 20 feet deep during their trip, also known as a French frigate Shoals. The Polynesian Voyaging Society said the wreckage was believed to be from the two brothers, a whaling ship from Nantucket that sank in 1823. The ship was captained by George Pollard Jr., previously captain of whaling ship Essex, which inspired Herman Melville's novel Moby Dick. Pollard died in the Lalo shipwreck. The shipwreck was first discovered by Noah in 2008, but the new find may add to mapping efforts. We're here to explore. It's exciting that our canoes are participating in the process of discovery with Noah, said, uh, I'm going to call N. Thompson, PVS president and navigator. 
uh, to feel like we're helping contributing to the body of knowledge of the ocean in this place is a privilege and a gift to those voyaging these canoes. PVS said it would take another two years for no archaeologists to return to Lalo and further investigate documents and verify the possible identities of the findings. All I'm seeing is this one anchor. They didn't have a whole... I looked at a few articles and I didn't find much more than this. Looks like the anchor on uh, Max Rack. It does. Yeah, very much. You got the flutes, the bar, and that's just a little bit different there at the uh, mm -hmm. the top. But yeah, more more similar than different. Yeah, yeah. Which would make sense. There, uh, this is probably a little bit older, but not a lot. And then how about this? Even people a long time ago weren't lucky in the water sometimes. 3,000-year-old remains in Japan belong to the world's oldest known shark attack victim study finds. While conducting a study on prehistoric person-to-person -person violence, Oxford, the University of Oxford researcher J. Alicia White and Rick Schutling, Schulting, Schulting, Rick Schulting, studied remains from the Japan's to Sukumo site, an ancient burial ground for fishers, hunters, and gatherers near Seto Island Sea. Among the remains first excavated in the early 20th century are now housed at the Kyoto University, which is partial skeleton of adult male with around 790 bone gouges, fractures, and other traumatic lesions. Researchers believe the, he lived during the Yeoman period, roughly between 10,500 BCE and 300 BCE. That's only a 10,000-year spread. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very precise. Yeah, so it's, it's either 2,300 years ago or 10,000. I mean, that's the – or 13,000. So they're saying 3,000. Is there somebody at a zero in there? Yeah, because 10,500 BCE would have been over 12,000 years ago. Uh, yeah, his injuries yeah. appear to have been caused by a metal weapon. But as Schlichting told Heretz, the metal is not part of the Joman culture. After deciding the man probably hadn't been killed by a person other than the area's land predators, researchers came up with another theory, shark attacked. They enlisted George Burgess. Director Emeritus of Florida Museum of Natural History's Florida Program for Shark Research to help evaluate the evidence. The Smithsonian reports their process involved using CT scans to create 3D maps of the victim's wounds. They also use radiocarbon dating to calculate that he may have died sometime between 1370 BCE and 1010 BCE. Now that makes more sense. Yeah, I think they added a zero up above. Their study publishing in the Journal of Archaeological Science report suggests that the man was indeed battered by a shark, making this the earliest known shark attack in history. Before now, the oldest record of shark attack was from about 1,000 CE. As for what kind of shark was behind the salt, researchers suspect either a great white shark or a tiger shark. <laughs> either one, he died. Uh, they may have some ideas about the circumstance of the attack, too. They think the man was alive when the shark targeted him. Partially because his left hand is missing, suggesting, suggesting he tried to defend himself. He may have been fishing with companions to explain how his remains got salvaged and buried. He may have been shark fishing, so it's possible that the sharks arrived on the scene after smelling other fish's blood. Well, well, certainly 
never be able to confirm those details. Discovery of such an ancient shark attack is significant enough on its own. Shark attacks were and are extremely rare. There are on average about 10 fatalities recorded each year in recent times with human population much larger than that of 3,000 years ago. So the Sukomo individual is very unusual and one might add very unlikely. You know, I, I think it's really great. It's all theory, correct? Oh, definitely. I believe this. You know, it could be that he was out there in a boat with other people and they were fishing and they weren't doing very good. So they tied a rope around the guy, threw him <laughs> out the back of his chum, and he's splashing around like this. The great white came and got him. They were able then to harpoon the shark, which means they got part of his body back. They took it to shore. They had a shark feast and they buried him in a great ceremony. Now, it could be that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that could be it. <laughs> well, I, I, mean, I think yours will sell a few more books. I, I think it is, yeah. Yeah, do we get to vote on it? Is that how is that how it works? <laughs> Science vote. Yeah. Which whichever sells your your version sells more papers. I think so. It's got more human interest too. Yeah. Oh, you know, I mean and after guy you know, half of them got bit off, they brought them back. You know, like a Viking burial, they put him down there, had a shark feast. His name is in history. Hey. Of course, 10,000 years ago, it's sort of lost by now. But uh, yeah, we, we do the same thing with hunting. You get the guy to go in front, and then the guy in the back shoots him. I mean, it's kind of the same thing. Generally, that happens, but that's accidental. Or so they say. Generally. Yes. Generally, well, yes. <laughs> Who's going to, you know, the dog did it. The dog did the, it. The dog did it. He well, that's happened before, you know. I, I, I guy have, went over went over a fence, left his gun, pulled it back. The dog grabbed it, and boom. That's bad. Bad dog. Man's best friend. Yeah. Yeah. And don't do that again. How did you teach him to do that? <laughs> yeah. Lots of training and peanut butter. Uh, uh, so we had teased this a couple years uh, years ago. Gosh. A couple weeks ago. And uh, didn't end up talking about it, so I thought I'd bring it up now. But we have both Kevin and Amy have been in the news, seems like for the last two or three weeks. They've had a couple different stories. Yes, different so places one, too. Yeah, this one was on Channel 3, which is a local station here in the southwest part of the state of Michigan, out of Kalamazoo. Um, and they did a nice uh, video spot. We're not going to play the video. we got links in the show notes if you want to go and listen. Uh, to it, um, but this was from Richland, Michigan, and this was talking about Gull Lake and the past, and there was a lot of nice photos in it, and I'm assuming, yeah, they say courtesy Kevin Ailes, so Kevin did the images, and there is Kevin and Amy there in the boat. The couple drives their boat like a time machine, letting sonar steer them, the sunken bygones. It's got a side scan. It's a hobby of mine to use technology and historical records to find and photograph remnants of our past, says Kevin Ailes. People have unfortunately been dumping these things in the bottom of the lake for a long time, but they're curious little time capsules we come across. And that's... that's. Uh, have you dove Gull Lake? Oh, yeah. yeah go. Have you dove the south end of Gull Lake in the Bay Area where a lot of the um, boats are housed? Yeah, I've... Back, back, back... In the day, 
they used to have a turkey dive out there. That's where the, mm -hmm. our turkey dive came up that we, we associate with. There, they used to float turkeys four foot off the, off the bottom in that bay. Mm -hmm. And that bay has got stuff like you would not believe, like these pictures. Yeah. Uh, the ones with the railroad uh, wheels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I... Um, wonderful stuff. And I dove out there with them before. And, you know, we always go to Paw Paw for looking for stuff. If you really want to have some fun, go there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I dove in that southern bay with Bob and Kurt uh, one, one season. And uh, there was... Uh, a, I hate saying a steamship, but it may have been. It was upside down boat. It had a prop out the bottom. Mm -hmm. It seemed almost like a glorified canoe, but uh, it would have had some sort of engine. Uh, and that was the big exciting thing to see in that spot. Uh, and then there was a large stump, just a gigantic stump with a cable on it, which meant that they stood on one side of the, the, the bay and pulled it in just to get rid of it. So they didn't want to haul it off. They just cut the tree off and then pulled the stump out. They're probably building something along the, the waterfront there. And that was a giant stump, you know, probably even 100 years later. Uh, he's got some videos in. It's worth taking a look, showing some of the side scans. And even better than, even better than that, he's got the coordinates and the side scan. There you go. Yeah. I mean, it gives you a place to go. Mm-hmm. I'm not just talking about it. They're showing you what it looks like and where you can find it. Yeah. Yeah, That that's not... The, these aren't items I've seen here. So, uh, yeah, he says, Scuttling a craft sinking the boat for disposal is quite unpopular today, but sadly it was commonplace in the past. I believe that several of the vessels remain waiting to be discovered in the lake. Yeah, it's just easier to do. You know, just kind of, but I'm not maintaining it anymore. You know, either you had to spend the effort and the time to chop it up. Sometimes they would burn it and then sink it. Sometimes they just plain out sink it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the exact uh, same kind of lifeboat that we used on saltwater vessel. Looking at perhaps 100 different styles of steel lifeboats, I determined it was of the Welland, Davit, and Boat Company. And that's, again, a quote from Kevin. Train track and train wheels. I've heard about those. I, I've seen the train track. I'm trying to remember if I've seen mm -hmm. the, the train wheels. That's off the Ross Township Park. Uh, this is a popular area uh, in the area. It's one of the first uh, dive spots uh, many people do when they're taking an open water class. Mm -hmm. uh, where the baseline road enter, enters into the lake, a popular area for ice farming. Laborers would saw the ice in the 300-pound cakes, which are hauled away in cars, better distribute the weight and ease transportation. Train tracks are temporarily laid over the ice. I hadn't heard that they did it over the ice. Yeah, there's an example of some of the boats. Like I think that's the boat there, uh, a similar boat that I've seen in that southern area. So a nice, nice write-up there. The, the, absolutely. And uh, I think uh, SAS Group has got a dive going up there to uh, Gull Lake next week, I believe it is. Yeah, See, it's next week or the week after. Yeah. And uh, if you looked on the Facebook part, they gave the diagram and the pictures of the items that are out there for you to look at, like the motorcycle, the basketball hoops, the trampoline, uh, the eye shanty. If you've not been out there, it's a good place to go. Lots of stuff to see, a lot of fish. Yeah. Uh, really nice introduction to the lake out there. Yeah, it's 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 a good dive spot. It's, uh, you know, the 
plenty for beginners. If you got access to a boat, you can get out to some of the other spots. Um, the uh, some of them are a little bit harder when boating season is. Like I know the uh, north and south side of the lake, we tend to do those in the uh, late fall or early spring, just to get mm -hmm. the lake traffic down. Otherwise, you're stopping people yep. wanting to do boating. So, uh, but there at the park, yeah. that's that's a great spot. And there's a nice course there. Uh, I'm, last time I dove it, there was still some cave line, but it was starting to almost need to be redone. Communications booth, uh, old ice boat, sailboat, trampoline. I, I wonder if the little the little guy is still on top of it for years. They had that little dummy in the scuba set. He was on top of the ice shanty. Hmm. And everybody was nice enough not to mess with it. Yeah, I, I think I don't... the motorcycle was getting pretty much buried too now. Yeah, I mean silt was was getting there. It, it was very silty yeah. bottom there. So that was kind of if there was a new course in the day, you, you wanted to skate out about 10, 15 minutes before them because uh, the new divers <laughs> would kind of break it in. They don't know what they do. <laughs> now, the middle of the week is good because classes are out there on the weekends. Yeah, here, just going through some of the photos. Yeah, he, like you said, he's got tons of photos there in that article. Uh, he's got some really nice ones also on the uh, club website. Yes. Nice video also. So I've got several places to go look at what they have found. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's a nice map of Gull Lake. I haven't seen that yep. one before. I, I love old yeah. maps just like that. I mean, I think they're like art. You know, those somebody drew that. You know, and then, and then the lettering of the title. Somebody took some, some time and did that. I think on that same area, they've got Lake 16. Mm -hmm. They've also got the pathways laid out for that. You know, from the platform out to the different boats, to the cars, yep. and the trails. Yep. That's another good place. Other than it is dark, it is deep, and you can get into deco mm -hmm. by going the whole pattern and coming back out. Yeah. Well, and and as we said earlier in the show, people give me permission to use their videos. And uh, I've got some uh, nice videos that people have done of Lake 16. So what I'm going to do is make a folder with some of these pre-set up. So when we bring up Lake 16 or something, we'll be able to play some of these videos in the background so people can get an idea. Yeah. The thing I think about, I remember of uh, Lake 16 the most, is if the novice goes down, looks around, and he gets to the big stop sign that says stop, if you're not prepared for the other half of the trip, meaning air, cold, light, it's a good thing to go back now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it's it, it's symbolic and actual. Because <laughs> yeah. it's what some of the spots down there are, are 80 feet and, and deeper in Lake 16. Yes. For a little it, inland lake, it, it gets quite deep. And if you get off the line and you kicked up the silt, it's not fun to be lost at 80 feet, not being able to figure out where you're at. You're no. going to wind up going topside. Yeah, you're going to want to float up surface marker buoy and come on up because it's going to be yeah. it's going to be there's been times where you you can dive that eight different times and see eight different things i mean with yep it's with the cave line at least you can kind of go oh i've done that and take a different path but uh there's there's quite a bit on there it's it's a nice lake it's our blow-off dive so 
you, know, you, you do a nice early in the season dive there, and then whenever you get blown off the big lake, you regroup there at uh, Lake 16. And that's our primary spot for ice diving because you got all that's to look at, plus it's deep enough, you're not going to muck up the bottom mm-hmm. on an ice dive. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, that's where we had the class this year. Unfortunately, sometimes, because they do allow motorboats on that lake, and it seems like once you get that silt stirred up, visibility takes a while to settle down. And that was a, if I understand, it was a mica mine that they are mining mica. Call it line or open pit, I guess, maybe more accurate. And then uh, I've got another article up on the screen. This one was just from a few weeks back earlier and congratulations to kevin and amy for their wedding uh, and that's what this article was talking about that was intercut between you know them doing vows and talking about shipwreck diving so and then they talked about uh the wrecks that kevin and and amy did some research on uh at the Mackinac island the dolphin and the bruschetta bruschetta I, whenever you say something like that, I'm thinking like some sort of uh, like bacon or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that that's nice to listen to that video. Kevin has some good points on the the wrecks that they were were looking at out there. Yep, there they're showing that Prochetico. Is it Prochetico? It's pr- probably pronounced real quickly. Uh, abandoned. Oh, your head's moving. So is mine. Yep, there we're we back. go. We're back. Back. Yeah, here we are, back in the stream. Yeah, there we are. We're back. Thank you, everybody, for holding on. I had to restart everything. Yay, podcasting. <laughs> so I think I think we were talking about anybody getting any diving in with a, with a rain that happened this last week, and did anybody? get out to any of the lakes? I believe they did. I know uh, I got out to Paw on Tuesday. And uh, you did not need a hood nor gloves. Ah. And a leaky wetsuit would have been fine. Thermocline was, you had to be past 16, 17 feet on the down slope before you even got chilly. But the visibility sucked big time. Uh, Maybe two feet, and that was not clear. You could see a blur maybe three feet. But uh, the purpose was to get a little wet time in, and uh, the diver that was with me is getting ready to go down to the south. Uh-huh. They'll have visibility. So we basically got down. He got a little practice going through the weeds in case he had some kelp to go in through. Uh, he learned that he has a powerful left leg. And if you try to do a compass course, you will go in a circle. <laughs> is is there a diver without a compass who doesn't go in a circle? No. No, I didn't think so. Now, well, let me rephrase that. If you're aware that you do, you really have to watch your compass. Yeah. And with no vis, you couldn't use the sun or the glow mm-hmm. as a reference. Because quite often, you know, you got that glow, that sunny part to your left, so as long as you go straight, you know it's to your left. You know, once you can't see the globe, then you know you're already turning. Yeah. But uh, the 
zebras and quaggas, they're pretty much gone, which surprised the blazes out of me. Um, so you can pick up rocks now and not have that covered over. Mm -hmm. So whatever they treated that with certainly worked. But you still don't have any, um, all the bottles and cans, you got silt like over everything. Yeah. Well, Dave said that he got to dive in the Detroit River. Yes. And I got to fix the Discord chat. That's being hidden. I'd like to hit the Detroit River because you got you got 100 plus years more history in the Detroit River. Plus, you got some nice bottles over there too. miss that kind of stuff. And had some nice quarries over there too, especially around Monroe. Yeah. You know where the Raisin River is, right? Monroe area? Yeah, uh, vaguely. I mean... The Battle Cry, remember the Raisin? <laughs> Do you remember don't. that? No, Seriously. I, I don't. It's a, <laughs> that, that sounds like a bakery show. Remember the Raisin? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was a big massacre there many years ago in a different war. But if you go down that Raisin River, there's a power plant on your right. Some of the docking there goes back over a hundred and some odd years plus. There's so much boat traffic, the only time you can really look at it is during the winter. But once you get out there, the silt in that part of the lake is, is if you had a boat there, you're not gonna know it. It's gonna be covered over 10, 15, 20 foot of silt. God, just think if the if conditions ever change and the silt starts going the other way, what you'll find. Yes. Be very nice. Yeah, if if you had the ability to do, uh, you know, just to kind of dry out a section of the river, and just spend a season going down digging, digging, yeah. Oh yeah. You could date things just real easily. I know when that can was. I know when that bottle was. All the fun stuff. Some of the the benefits of river diving. I think the rain really inhibited a lot of people getting wet this way, other than getting wet from the rain, inhibited a lot of uh, diving. And again, the runoff is excessive right now. Yeah, crazy. But we'll see maybe this weekend. There's some talk of getting on the Havana. Yep. Yeah, so we, we are coming up on the 4th of July holiday weekend. So uh, some people have, I think Monday's the holiday some some people are taking you know tomorrow off, which is a Friday, and then Monday, so uh, some lo some long weekends out there. I I love it when fourths on a weekend. Well, you can see the big difference on the COVID aspect because uh, you go into Myers down here and now now you maybe have five percent of the people wearing masks. Mm -hmm. um, the library's opened up. It's, if you want to wear one, go ahead and wear one, but they're not required now. Well, I see a big picture of my turtles. You said you saw a big picture of your turtles? Well, I see you, and then suddenly you went away. My whole background is there, and the picture of the turtles in the back. Uh, yeah, I was I was thinking of, uh, you know, we, we need a product that the podcast sells to make money. And uh, I was listening to a show today, and out of a bet, he had come up, 
they they did that kind of a joke and he came up with this idea of a fragrance called dead turtle <laughs> and i'm not sure that's going to go over really and, good and, and well that's what the guy who who writes the material for him said he said it's, it's not going to go over real real well so he set up a website he's selling the bottles of the dead turtle uh perfume or whatever you say it in french yeah smelly stuff uh but 50, 50 bucks a bottle it got picked up on uh some reddit or or chat and he was having hundreds of orders and he's he says guys it was a joke he says i i can i actually am making it but uh so i was thinking that's what we need to do if we were going to do some sort of sense I, I think that neoprene. would be well, I, neoprene. Bottle, that that one. Neoprene. I think neoprene. I think uh, beach surf. You know, a mixture of rotting seaweed and fish. I think that's a that's a scent that we could do. Uh, you know, you've got you've got uh, dive boat exhaust. I think would be a good one. Yeah, you can make special necklaces with golf balls in the middle. And golf balls. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So can we get a merchant merchandise line? You know, some swag. You know, who who else has the dirty old golf balls? You, you know, around their neck. Yeah, yeah. We could come up with some uh, some thing that what they what they do for you. Gosh, I wish I hadn't thought about it. Dive boots in the sun, Derek says for a, for a scent. Yes, that is a yeah. That's 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 a nice. Wet suit in the trunk of your car in the summer that you yeah. may have urinated it. yeah that's what i was thinking it's like we should have two versions that's, that's a that's a big strong one yeah urine and no urine yeah because uh a, a little bit of urine you've rinsed off can ferment quite handily on your way home in a car uh, yeah especially in the trunk yeah hot day yeah ni Ooh. nice one yeah so yeah if you have any ideas on that drop us a line you know we'll, we'll come up with them so i was thinking do you make them accurate smells or you just do that as a name you know, you just rebrand some perfume and that just happens to be the name? Because, I mean, good marketing. You can sell anything. Uh, well, if you had a pet rock, you could yeah. certainly do this. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Everybody under 40 has no idea what a pet rock is. That or a hula hoop. I think people know what a hula hoop is. True, but, you know, how, how simple is that? The hula hoop was really simple, yeah. So yeah. it was a pet rock. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I remember that. I, I could remember, yeah. Yeah. But that one wasn't exclusive enough. Uh, it didn't take too long before everybody kind of had, had jumped on the, the craze and gotten it. Yeah, so. I don't think the essence of scuba is going to go very far, though. I mean, for gag gift, maybe, but that's about it. Well, that's I was. I don't think you're going to attract the opposite sex with dead turtle essence. <laughs> dead turtle. <laughs> or anything like that. No. Well, that's why I think we almost needed two lines. You needed like a gag line. Because you, you've always got that thing, you know, you got the dive buddy and you just want to get him something. Uh, or maybe it's like two-sided. Maybe it's like it's got, it's 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 a bottle where it's got both scents in it. 
and you spin the top and you never know which one you're going to get until you spray it. <clears throat> Rotting seaweed, that, that that's another one, nice one. Okay, do you have a dive safety story for the week? You'd well, like actually, to? I do. Uh, considering that we had been talking about that uh, young lady who passed away, uh, where that lawsuit is for $12 million. So this article is quite appropriate for that. It's called a trisuit disaster, lessons for life. Lack of training leads to fatal accident for a new dry suit diver. And this is a little old one, but still happens every year. The dive started with some difficulty, but after a few minutes, Tom settled down and figured out his buoyancy in the dry suit. This was his first drive using it. His buddy had given him a quick overview on what he needed to do. Tom wasn't comfortable with the suit, but he had to admit it was keeping him warm in the chilly waters around the wreck. His buddy signaled it was time to ascend, and Tom began swimming for the surface. He attempted to release air from his PC, but nothing came out. Then he remembered all the air was in his dry suit. But then he was already ascending too fast. Now the diver. Tom was a 53-year-old male with advanced open water certification. He'd been diving for one year, was in good health, no known medical conditions, and he had logged about 40 dives. Now the dive. When Tom's buddies told him they were going to take a special day trip to dive on a wreck he was in, he'd heard stories and seen photographs and was very excited about the dive. Though it was May, the water was cold with surface temperatures in the mid-50s and closer to 50 at the bottom. Tom rented a dry suit from the local dive shop. One of his buddies told him how to use it. They planned to make two dives to the wreck. The main deck was at 90 feet of fresh water. They were using a nitrox mix, gave him plenty of bottom time at depth without worrying about no stop limits. The dive site was in a river with a strong current but they made their way down the anchor line without incident. Tom struggled to adjust his buoyancy. He finally got his suit inflated enough that it provided the, needle ther the needed thermal protection that allowed him to hover. And the divers explored the wreck for about 30 minutes before deciding to head for the surface. And therefore the accident. As soon as the group began ascending, Tom was in trouble. He tried to deflate his BC as he ascended, but it took him a few seconds to remember that wasn't where the air was. He attempted to release it from his dry suit, but it was too late. He was already rapidly ascending. Witnesses on the surface said he broke the surface with a splash in a cloud of bubbles. He lost conscious immediately. One of his buddies had followed Tom to the surface and got to him a minute later. The buddy immediately towed him to the dive boat. The boat captain realized the dire situation with other divers providing CPR and first aid. He alerted the authorities and headed towards emergency medical care at maximum speed. Though the captain and crew reacted as quickly as possible, Tom was pronounced dead upon arrival at the medical care facility. Autopsy report wasn't released, but it was reasonable to uh, conclude Tom died due to an air embolism caused by rapid ascent. Now the analysis. Dry suit does a fantastic job of keeping water environments, especially down to near freezing water temperatures for ice diving. But like any gear, you have to know how to use it. In the same way you wouldn't just throw on a BC regs and jump into the water, you need to receive training on how to use a dry suit before making a dive. 
Dry suits work by keeping a layer of air inside the suit, which insulates the diver well. You have to add more or less inside the suit, depending on the depth that you're descending, because the air does compress. When diving with a dry suit, you use your BC for surface buoyancy to hold your cylinder, of course, and as a backup buoyancy if your dry suit has a problem. With most types of dry suits at depth, you only use your suit to control buoyancy through a few types of dry suits. In tech diving, you may still use your BC. Witnesses said on the boat that Tom didn't seem comfortable with his dry suit before entering the water, even though one of his buddies coached him throughout the setup. When it came time for the ascent, Tom's training and muscle memory kicked in. Began swimming up, reached release air from his BC, which did not accomplish anything. It was only then he remembered the air release from the suit using the valve on his shoulder. But by that time, the air in the suit was already expanding. He was rapidly ascending. General guidelines for the normal ascent are what? One foot every two seconds, 30, sec or 30 feet per minute. By those standards, Tom needed about three minutes to ascend from 90 feet to the surface. He made it in six seconds. Tom immediately lost consciousness on the surface, combined with a rapid ascent, this textbook description of an air embolism. Begins with lung overexpansion injury. The air in his lungs expanded so rapidly it tore a hole in the lung and escaped into the lung cavity. The pulmonary barotrauma to his lungs allowed that expanding air to enter his circulatory system. The only way to prevent or avoid this situation is to follow your training. You need to make a rapid continuously ascent if you have to. Keep that airway open. Exhale all the way to the surface. Key item, you may have panicked just like Tom did, or assumed he did, and struggling with his gear because the ascent was so rapid it is questionable that he even had time to had time to vent the air from his lungs even if he'd been trying. And if they calculate it was uh, six to nine seconds, probably not. Lessons for life is basically seek training from a certified dive instructor in equipment techniques that are new to you and practice them in the shallow waters. That's some, some good tips. I think as much as anything, even if you did not have a dive suit class, which a lot of the older guys never did, mm -hmm. we also didn't stop or start with doing 90 foot dives. No. We started out with unisuits and we started at Paw Paw Lake. And uh, you learned real quick, even in 15 to 20 foot, about your buoyancy control. And uh, that stayed with you. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to be smart about it. As we've said before, you're your, your own best advocate. And if, if you're having a hard time controlling your buoyancy, you need some more practice. That will come with time. I mean, you could say if you don't get your buoyancy under control, then you probably need to you know, find a different sport, but it, it, it varies on person. I mean, there are, I know some people who just are almost naturals and within a few, you know, with a, less than a dozen dives, they they got pretty good buoyancy. But, uh, it, for me, it took to about 50 or 60 dives and I felt like I was okay. You know, then about a hundred to 150, I'm getting to where, okay, now I'm okay. And then you get to where you're at 200 and then you go, okay, now I'm okay. 
where now my buoyancy is is pretty much automatic. But you can but you can goof it up. I mean, you can do a thousand dives and still goof up your buoyancy. Especially if you're not using a dry suit. Yeah. Uh, just a simple thing of going to the pool next time mm-hmm. at 12 feet. You know you're going to exhale on the way up. But burp your suit, get some, more, some air in it, and see how quick you can go and hit that dump valve. Yeah. And you're going to be surprised how much trouble it takes and how fast you go, even from 12, 15 feet pool. Yeah. yeah. And, and control your vari- the variables that you're changing. You don't want to make a whole lot of weight changes and gear changes all at once and not know how they're how it's going to act and and even if you are on a good line or even a chain Mm -hmm. and you start to inflate your bc or your bc starts going out of control like your purge button didn't Mm -hmm. work and your inflator free flows you can hold on that chain but you can't hold on to enough before it's going to rip you out and you're going to go up yeah and I know with my mitts, I cannot disconnect my inflator hose. Yep. Well, and then uh, learn the different uh, dump valves. You know, a, a rookie diver may only know the one inflator, but like if, uh, like I, I call it the butt dump, you know, that valve on a BC, I can dump a lot more air out of that than uh, it seems like the regular inflator. My understanding is if in your regular BC that you have the auto inflate, mm-hmm. if you start to have a free flow, my understanding is you take it and hold it straight up, hit the dump. Mm-hmm. That will help minimize it because it'll go back out as opposed to your BC and out one of your relief valves. I have not tried that in the pool, so yeah. that might be a good exercise next yeah, time we have that'd, access. That'd be a good one to try. Yeah, because you're supposed to be able to dump it as fast as you can put it in. Good point. And talking about BCs, though, this weekend I had an occurrence on mine. I'm getting down there and going like this, and I can hear the, but my BC is not inflating. On the surface, I got some inflation a little bit. So I immediately considered, hey, it's working. When I'm down at the bottom, I did that, and I can hear it coming out, but I'm getting nothing in my BC. And I'm in six, seven, eight feet of water. You know how we are on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Came back up, and the fitting right at the valve, not the valve, but the uh, relief valve, the hose went up to it. That fitting actually broke. So every time you put air in, it went right out. Had I been deep, that would have not been a fun thing if mm-hmm. I had needed to uh, use the BC to get back up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Derek in the chat room was talking about that uh, he just moved to a dry suit. He says his undergarments make such a difference to the lead that he needs. Uh, and he also uh, needs a lot in salt water. And that's something that we didn't bring up is that if you're going from salt water to fresh water, that certainly affects your buoyancy. Yep. Uh, that's why it's really important to have dump valves yeah. and dump weights so you can get rid of all of them. But my BC, I have packs in the back with weights to help distribute it out. But yesterday, just for the fun of it, I got rid of all my pouches, my extra weights in the pocket. Mm-hmm. And I could still go down because I did not have gloves, did not have a hood. Yeah. Uh, they... It sort of surprised me that with no weights on and my BC except in the back, 
I could actually still go down. Yeah. Uh, Dave's mentioning that he thought he had good buoyancy control, and then he took a cave class and learned how bad he was. Uh, yeah, cave divers. I mean, you you yeah. certainly want to make sure you you got that under control. And the same kind of goes for wreck diving. You know, the the best yeah, wreck divers they can, they can go go through and yeah, nice nice little light frog kick. Uh, because a, a nice enjoyable dive where you're going to get some nice video to a complete silted in where you're hoping that your cave line doesn't break. Uh, can can be affected by buoyancy. That's why I, I like the pool to party. Mm -hmm. um, if you just look around, look at the guys who are doing side mount. They just, I mean, and Bob for Bob uh, Sweeney, just gliding, no effort. Yeah. Uh, Dave, there were some students. He was he never touched the bottom. Never, you know, he was just just like this. Yeah. Swim around and he stayed there. That's what you call good trim, good awareness. Yep. And that's good because Dave's an uh, instructor and uh, you get some pool time, but then also that kind of gives everybody a goal to look for. Well, you just go through the hula hoops. That tells you real quick how much stability you have, how even you can go through an obstacle. Mm -hmm. Fun things to do at a pool party. Okay. Well, do we have, uh, oh, uh, we uh, something else we forgot. Wasn't this weekend the... Uh, Last we forget? Last weekend. Was that the weekend before? Yep. Okay. I, I kind of thought it was, but then I saw all the posts coming out. So this must be a little <laughs> little post delay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was not as uh, well attended part of it. Some equipment they normally have, uh, like an extra. Uh, they did have, um, they, they didn't have the Anfib, but they had the Duck. They had Higgins' boat. Uh, they did not have Huey's, but they did have a Robinson helicopter if you want to take a nice little tour. But the uh, 369th uh, Huey Association was not there this year, and I always go see them. Uh, they did have the, uh, it's called, the, the special this, this time to awareness was the Korean War. And there's a display, that a uh, mobile display of a platoon of soldiers from that era, uh, plus Marine, plus Navy corpsman, spread out in a big V um, in the fields. That got a lot of attention mm -hmm. uh, with the statistics of the war. And uh, it, it was a lot of fun. I went out metal detecting the other day after they left, like last weekend when we had the big torrential rain just before that hit. Because I knew where they had their firefights and their simulated, and I knew they're not going to pick up the brass. So it's amazing how many blank rounds I picked up that did not fire. Oh, really? Yeah. Ah, and, are, and they were blanks, of course. As you yes. Said. Yeah. 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 Even even that, I'm not a big fan of uh, blanks being left in the ground. But yeah, all yeah. but they, they took the flamethrower. They took the flamethrower with them. I was looking for that. But. Yeah. No, but that does a marshmallow and real quick. Yeah, have you ever have you ever been near a flamethrower when it's no uh, no not I've seen them in movies. You can feel the heat. I I would I would imagine just seeing how that comes off. Uh, yeah, that 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 just uh, 
I mean, I think they, they didn't last too long because they were targets. Just like medics, you didn't want to put that red cross. Yeah, you didn't put the red on cross on your helmet. It's like, hey, well, there's a target. Let's get him. Well, yeah, because I, uh, I, I think you would let uh, a bunch of other guys shooting at you uh, go before you, you know everybody went after the flamethrower guy. <laughs> oh yeah. Actually, the rounds that I did find that did not fire were Japanese. They were actually using real, I mean, ammo from mm -hmm. that. And as you watch them, you can see where it jams, where it didn't fire, and they had to clear the weapon. That's why where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Other than that, you find a lot of 30-odd-6 ammo. Well, do we have anything we need to plug before we get on out of here? Uh, hopefully everybody will get wet this weekend and stay safe and we'll see you next week. Yeah. Yeah. And once again, that starts with me and you. <laughs> yep. And, and, and yeah, that certainly does. I need to figure out a way of getting out. Uh, doesn't look like it's going to happen this weekend. Uh, and then, uh, let everybody know that in next week I'll be around, but the week following, uh, we probably won't do a podcast. Uh, I'll be moving my daughter to Kentucky. So uh, so the 15th is out, but you will be here next on the 8th. Yep, I'll be here on the 8th, but but not the 15th. So I'll, I'll set something up. And, uh, yeah, un unfortunately, and, and with all this, I don't know how I would begin to do all this stuff. But... Uh, and then you and I will be getting together to do some some actual recording. I'm, I'm, and I will be probably not around the last week. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to Oshkosh. Ah, very for nice. A couple of days. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, been a couple of years since I've been. Yeah, get, get us some video for that. We can uh, do kind of a recap. I know there's some listeners, not quite dive related, but uh, people like to see the plane. So maybe we could do a a slideshow of that, or maybe we do a bonus episode just of the. Uh, the show, maybe a, this. I I do nose art. I like to go around to the old aircraft, the bombers and the fighter job, uh, fighters. Yep. Because the nose art is it's just amazing. Yeah, maybe we'll just do an episode. It'll be like a bonus episode, just on Oshkosh. So, you gonna do any any uh, jumping? Actually, my buddy's taking my rig in this week. Uh, I would like to get one in. Mm-hmm. Next week, actually, I'd like to be able to take my rig with me and see if I could uh, get somebody to let me jump out of one of their bombers or something. That'd be cool. There you go. That would be. And I'll take your word on it because I'm not a skydiver. So me jumping out in my backpack, it's probably a one-way trip. Well, I've still got that one water rig. I still got an inkling to get a water jump in. Mm -hmm. That would be a good fun one. Yeah. I thought I was going to have an article today on, uh, they, they had one that was talking about skydiving and scuba diving, but when I looked at it, it wasn't, it wasn't somebody doing both. It was just two examples of extremes is what the article was. So it's like, darn it. Well, we had, we had talked about that, but it takes a little monetary funding if you want to do it yourself. There's a, a group here in Michigan that actually, because they knew that I dove and jumped and and we brought up the thing about uh well we could always do a skydive onto the Havana, hit the water, go immediately into scuba, dive the shipwreck and then come on back up. 
and they were all for that, but their funding was limited also. Mm -hmm. That's not inexpensive to do, but damn, I'd like to try that. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that it takes a lot of support from the surface. I mean, you got to have several boats. If you're smart, you have a guy in a, a wave runner with a diver on the back as your safety. Because I've jumped at, at Pawpaw, but it's a lot different if you're talking the big lake and you're talking then going down to dive on a wreck. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so if anybody's got money and wants to pay for that, <laughs> hey, we can plan that sucker. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well once again, I'd like to thank everybody who's been listening and downloading. We certainly could use your support. Uh, we are on the new host. I'm working through some issues that they had with migrating the data. So some of the older episodes, are formatting's wrong. And with 500 episodes, that's a lot to have to fix. So I'm not real excited about that. And then there's a couple features that the new host doesn't have that we had before. So I'm trying to get them to commit to fixing them or I may have to move again. So we're seeing... Uh, so yeah, we'll just have to see how it goes, but if you are enjoying the program, we certainly appreciate that support. If you go to, uh, Patreon, uh, you get there by our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over to our Patreon link. $3 or more gets you early access to show notes and we'll eventually start doing some exclusive content. Um, if you can't do that, we certainly understand. And if you could just uh, give us a review if you think we deserve it. You know, five stars helps out on your platform of choice. And also, we have we are starting to do YouTube. So if you've just been listening to the audio podcast, make sure you check out our YouTube channel. You know, do what everybody says. The like and subscribe. It lets other people know about it. Uh, we had a pretty good uptick on YouTube traffic just in the last week. I'm kind of getting the hang of the YouTube thing. Uh, in fact, Mac and I, at the end of this, will have to do some funny faces because that's what gets people to uh, to look. I usually do uh, take some of the individual shots where we're, we're probably not looking the most professional, and then I superimpose some goofy item on it because what happens when people are going to the videos, you get a recommended video, and somebody goes, I don't know what they're doing, but it must be fun, and then they click on it. So... <laughs> <laughs> so that's some of what's going on so are you ready mac absolutely okay two lions plan their escape from the circus the night they get out of their cages and they see a lone clown stumbling back from town drunk not a soul in sight since they're going on the run they decide to catch one the last meal before they hit the road as one lion gets a bite of the leg and the second takes a bite of the shoulder, one stops and asks his companion, does this taste funny to you? <clears throat> Is that like if, if you're ever attacked by a, by a clown, go for the juggler? <laughs> Oh, yeah, I think it's exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. <laughs>